Welcome back, listener, to the Modern History HSC Podcast, your personal guide to understanding the modern world around us. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to the Modern History HSC Podcast. Today, I'm here with Frank Dakota. He is the Chair Professor of Humanities at the University from Hong Kong and the author of the Fantastic People's Trilogy. Um, I've got him on today uh, to speak about his new book, China After Mao and the Rise of the Superpower, and to give us a bit of an insight into some questions that um, we need to cover here in our syllabus here in New South Wales for students and teachers um, when we pick China and the Cultural Revolution as our topic of study. So I just can't think of anybody better who can break down some of these questions and demystify the China Communist Party. So first of all, how are you going, Frank? And thanks for coming on the podcast with me today. Thank you. Um, Let's start with the first question that I have. When I first read um, the the first book in your trilogy, which was Mao's Great Famine, I was just overwhelmed with the, and surprised with the amount of detail and the description in the preface about how you collected the sources that you're coming at, um, looking at Chinese history, not from the powerful man view or from the elite view, that you're really going to all of these smaller provinces, these local archives. So my first question is, when you're collecting and doing this research, um, and you're saying that you're getting access and granted special access to these archives. Are you going from town to town, um, province to province, sitting in back rooms, reading over all of this stuff? Or is it like a digital version or is it delivered to you at a university or something like that? It's a, it's a very good question. It, it's a complicated one because, of course, um, things change. And I've been working in archives for pretty much a quarter of a century. Um, it started first when documents were opened up on the Republican era before communism from 1911 to 49. Um, I was very much in there like a ferret, wrote a couple of books. And then round about 2002, 2003, I realized that archives were also declassifying material on uh, the post-49 era, uh, in particular, the three decades under Mao. Um, Now, you got to remember two things. First of all, as a historian, This may come as a surprise, um, but not everyone thinks the way um, uh, I do. Um, I think that the primary sources must be primary, the secondary sources must be secondary. And all too often when it comes in particular to the PRC, it is the other way around. There's a reason for that. This country, the moment the red flag goes up over the Forbidden City in 1949, is close to foreigners. So for many decades, um, no anthropologist, economist, historian, sociologist can actually go to China to do fieldwork. This continues, of course, for quite a while. Um, to, to, to you know, 1989 is clearly a, a low point. Um, and all along, access um, has been somewhat difficult. So the commitment to use primary sources as a foundation 
uh, is really what got me going. And the second point is that it might seem difficult to access archives, but you've got to realize that the very best historians are of the PRC are really inside the PRC. You will not enter a reading room in a municipal archive, a provincial archive, a central archive in Beijing without seeing many historians, some of them budding young historians or students and others um, quite, you know, respected professional historians from Shanghai or Beijing. Um, so what you need is a letter of introduction which states what it is you want to read and why you want to read it and who you are. So any professional historian um, should, should be able to, to do this. Now, of course, the key point really is that the rules vary enormously across this very vast country and access as a result is extremely uneven. This is not, you will have noticed, a democracy. Yeah. If you wish to access archives in, say, Paris or London or Berlin or Washington, uh, very clear rules about what you can read. Generally, governments have a sort of 30-year period after which a great amount is declassified around Christmas every year. Uh, historians wait in Kew Gardens, the National Archives in London, to see uh, what batch will be released. Um, but not so, of course, in the one party state where um, the files belong to the party. Now, as a result, I think um, there are some pretty surprising results. Y you, you got to bear in mind that in a dictatorship, there's not just one dictator, there are many of them at every level. And if the director of an archive decides that a certain amount should be opened up, um, you will be able to read quite a bit. And somewhere else, a director of an archive might decide that the merest newspaper cutting uh, is a state secret, which must be protected at all cost. Yeah. And no one will be able to enter. So it, it just varies greatly. You must just knock on a lot of doors and uh, see what happens. There's a little bit of potluck and a little bit of persistence involved. Now, once you are in there, as I said, generally, you will not be the only one in there. You will see right away in the reading room if there are other people working on material. Then certainly for the um, early part of, of this millennium, you know, after the year 2000, most of it was really paper. In other words, you will order uh, fat files which contain dozens of documents which may range from a few pages to something like 60, 70 pages, and you'll just work your way through it. You literally have a pile of documents on your desk, and you order them uh, as you go, so to speak. But of course, increasingly, material has been digitalized, which uh, can be a good thing if you're allowed to, say, download it. It could be a bad thing in that it's much easier for an archive to actually control exactly what it is you wish to see and read. So again, I would say uh, persistence pays off very well, but there must be a ground rule here. Uh, and the ground rule, I think, is that, again, primary sources should be primary, and historians really ought to use primary sources uh, in their research. So what I'm doing is, is very much what any 
professional historian of England or France or Russia or Japan would be doing. There's nothing exceptional about it. Yeah. Um, just thinking back to the opening of your new book, um, The Rise of the Superpower, you speak about how this opening, which happened around about 2002, 2003, um, this window is kind of closing that there is now a clamp down on, like you were saying, you were lucky, a bit of potluck, a, a lot of persistence looking for information to piece together this history from primary sources. And now this window is closing and perhaps you're finding less and less access to this information. Do you feel like your books, the trilogy and the book that you've written now, stand out as a few leftover sources of truth on the error if someone was going to try to you know replicate or try to um improve on what you've done or get another take would they struggle to try to get these archives now it it would be impossible it would be impossible yeah um so what i had in mind um i did a degree also in soviet literature, Russian literature, so history of the Soviet Union as an undergraduate, what I had in mind, of course, was the collapse of the Soviet Union, 91-92. The archives opened up in Moscow for a few years, but then they closed down again. Now, when you bear that in mind, you realize that not everything will last forever. In short, I am an opportunist. I see an opportunity, I will seize it. If I cannot get good material on a particular issue I'm interested in or a particular period, I simply won't do it. So when I realized that vast amounts of material were actually being made available uh, after 2002, 2003, I was very much in there like a ferret, thinking that this would not continue forever. I was very lucky to write the trilogy. And by the time I went back in 2016 to prepare this particular book, China After Mao, I wasn't too sure what would happen. At the time, there was very much a dark cloud hanging over the Maoist era, and it would have been very difficult then, 2016, to, to replicate what I had done um, 10, 8, even 6 years earlier on. Many files were being really reclassified, yeah. so put away for good. But then I realized that you know, the moment I mentioned that I was interested in the policy of reform and opening up, that I wanted to study the Chinese economic miracle, Van de Tone very much changed. And I realized I was able to read quite a bit, not just on the 80s, but in some cases, all the way up till 1998, in a few cases up to 2002, even when it came to the banking sector up till 2008, the financial crisis uh, unleashed uh, in the United States first and then affecting the, the People's Republic of China later. So quite paradoxically, I was able to read material on a period which might not be readily available in a democracy. That, that, that's the great paradox here. Yeah, because of the your framing and perhaps some of your credentials as well. Right, let's get into some of the questions. Now everybody knows the, the extent that you have gone to and the breadth of your knowledge that you have on the topics. 
Um, first question that I have is going to dip a little bit back into the trilogy, but also what I really like about your book is that there are flashbacks to talking about the Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution. I mean, how can you not? So my first question is, what is the legacy of the Great Leap Forward on the social conditions of China? Well, of course, tens of millions of people in the countryside uh, died of hunger mainly. Now, the fact, of course, is absolutely devastating. But the long-term consequence is also very interesting, namely that the famine unleashed by Chairman Mao pretty much destroys the credibility of the party in the countryside. So from there onwards, from roughly 1961-62 onwards, few people in the countryside are convinced of the superiority of the collectivized economy. They want to go back to what they had been done before 1949, namely cultivate their own land, make the decisions about what to plant and what to do with the produce, rather than work as bonded servants at the beck and call of party officials who make all the decisions about the economy. Um, they want the land. Yeah. Um, when we get into the Cultural Revolution, so that obviously sets up an interesting point that you have a loss of faith in the provinces, you have a loss of faith in the rural areas. Um, they see that the collectivization and the people's communes are not working. Um, we have the Cultural Revolution, and that is really pushed by Mao. It's, his aims are protecting his legacy, proving that communism works, uh, as well as um, trying to, what would you say, purge other elements from the party that are trying to um, tarnish his name. So we have the Cultural Revolution. So what's the impact of the Cultural Revolution on the leadership of the Communist Party? Does that, again, to another level, push the people in the rural areas away, or does it affect the cities at this point as well? Well, I think there are a number of very important implications. So first, just to stick to the countryside, um, as, 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 as you know, the Cultural Revolution is about a number of things. It's quite complex. But one of the reasons why Mao launches a Cultural Revolution is, as you noted, because he's afraid that the, there might be party officials who are unhappy about the Great Leap Forward, the tens of millions of deaths uh, that it has caused, and will somehow uh, either stab him in the back or, uh, after his death, pretty much demolish his legacy, very much the same way that Nikita Khrushchev in 1956 had denounced his erstwhile master, Joseph Stalin, who had died three years earlier in 1953. So that really is... is the the fear on the part of Mao, who will be China's Khrushchev? Who will denounce him? Now, he's smart enough to realize that Stalin wasn't able to spot his nemesis, uh, Khrushchev. So what Mao does during the Cultural Revolution, a, a very particular phase in the winter of 1966, he actually allows something that no party, no one party state has, has ever done. He allows ordinary people to denounce 
party members, members of the Chinese Communist Party, at every level, all the way up to the higher echelons of power. His idea is that if you allow people to denounce party members who might harbor uh, so-called revisionist ideas or bourgeois ideas or capitalist ideas, who, who might have doubts about the Great Leap Forward, doubts about Chairman Mao himself, then you can very thoroughly purge the party. Now, the result of that is that um, the party is undermined. The party is undermined pretty much at every level, uh, whether you're a powerful minister like Liu Shaoqi, number two, dies in the prison cell, or whether you're an ordinary party official in the countryside, you will at one point or another be taken to task. Your prestige is, is very much diminished. So the, the point I'm trying to make here is that much as the Great Leap Forward undermined the credibility of the party, its organization in the countryside uh, is damaged by the Cultural Revolution. So already before the chairman dies in 1976, years before, from 1970 onwards, as, as the army is purged, increasingly millions upon millions and millions of people in the countryside start using this power vacuum to claim back basic economic freedoms, sometimes with the consent of local cadres who themselves are sick and tired of three years of a collectivized economy. Sometimes with, with the connivance, they will take back the land, they take back their own tools, they operate underground factories, they open black markets, they trade, which of course is, is, is a sign of you know, capitalism, uh, which might be punished uh, in, 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 in other circumstances. So by the time that Mao dies, parts of the countryside have in effect already decollectivized. So let me go a little bit forward and focus on Deng Xiaoping, who is frequently acclaimed as the architect of economic reforms. Uh, in particular, the third plenum in December 1978 is seen as a key turning point where Deng Xiaoping uh, gives contracts to the people's communes, these large collectives in the countryside established at the height of the Great Leap Forward in 1958, gives these um, the, gives the people's communes contracts in which any surplus over and above procurement quotas can be retained and disposed of as the people's communes see fit. The purpose uh, here is to reinforce the people's collectives, not undermine them. Time and again, Deng Xiaoping and the other leaders in 1979, 80, 81, emphasize that the collectivized economy is the backbone of the economy, that no household, no family is allowed to cultivate the land on their own. But the reality is very different. The people's communes take these, take these contracts, hand them out to the villagers. The villagers give them to ordinary families. By 1981, more than half of the land in the number of provinces is cultivated by individual families. The people's communes collapse in 1982. So that's one result of the uh, Cultural Revolution, namely that ordinary people were not 
waiting for an invitation from above. They took a lead. They undermined the economy, the, the collectivized economy. They used their own enterprise to make sure that they could thrive. Now, that's very much um, what happened in the late 70s, early 80s in the countryside. Now, another key point really is that the party, um, which was, of course, uh, subjected to a whole series of purges during the Cultural Revolution, um, was determined after the death of Mao that no one should ever be allowed, no ordinary people should ever be allowed to speak up again. This is what Mao had done in the autumn, winter of 1966. He wanted ordinary people to denounce party members. That is never to happen again. In other words, basic economic freedoms are regained by ordinary people in the 1980s, but the party is determined to repress, to repress their political aspirations. Just to continue on a little bit from that, so the next question that I was going to have was explain the nature of Deng Xiaoping's reforms, and you've already laid out that if we're looking at the progress of time, we've gotten to a environment and a context where um, a huge section of the Chinese population are just simply ignoring what the party is doing and uh, and saying and ordering and dictating. Um, and when we read the textbooks that are at school, it doesn't go into that level of detail that your book goes into it's something along the lines of you know Deng Xiaoping responsible for the four modernizations and then this opens up China where that is not the case that you lay out in your book so do you mind just going into that a little bit more and then also what are some of the other reforms that Deng Xiaoping uh, is trying to put forward to try to get China out of a context of stagnation, including the, the crackdowns, the political reforms as well. Right. So what you got to bear in mind is that as a result of the Cultural Revolution, no one in the upper echelons of power, whether it's Deng Xiaoping or the eight elders uh, around him throughout the 1980s, none of them uh, wants to have uh, any political reform they are they are literally as a result of the cultural revolution a party afraid of their own people now on the economic front there are two aspects to to this period one is the countryside the other one is of course the state enterprises you got to realize that under Mao, with a collectivized economy, the state runs everything. If you are a villager or whether you work in a factory, by definition, you are just a state employee. Now, I've talked about the countryside and noted that the contract system, which was intended by Deng Xiaoping to reinforce the people's communes, uh, these contracts were actually handed out to household families with the result that the land was taken back and cultivated by individuals leading to the collapse of the people's communes. In the meantime, by 1982, when these communes uh, collapsed, the income of people in the countryside has doubled. So if you wish, 
very successful initiative as hundreds of millions of people in the countryside pretty much lifted themselves out of poverty. But the next important point is really 1984, when very little has been done um, about the state enterprises. All enterprises at this particular point are state enterprises, with a very few um, exceptions. They are not performing very well. So what Zhao Siyang does, number three, technically, the one in charge of the economy with Deng's consent, in 1984, he takes the same contract system that was issued um, to the countryside and applies it to state enterprises. In other words, same principle, in order to create an incentive, state enterprises who fulfill their procurement quotas are allowed to retain and sell any surplus. In other words, if you are a state enterprise, you produce shoes, your contract is to make 10,000 pairs, you produce 11,000 pairs, you can keep the 1,000 pairs and sell it on the market. Now, what happens here is very interesting. It results in an economic boom, double-digit growth from 1984 all the way till 1989. It seems very successful. But there is also inflation, um, and this is how it works. Since state enterprises now have an incentive, they need raw materials. But in the countryside, too, a great many uh, village enterprises have been set up, and they are unwilling to let go of their own raw materials. For instance, a village enterprise might use timber to make furniture. State enterprises also want to have timber. So gradually, in villages and in counties, um, also in provinces, borders are being erected. Party secretaries want to safeguard their own resources from outsiders checkpoints appear. This country, instead of becoming a unified national market, is turned into a loose patchwork of independent fiefdoms in which you can no longer uh, sell a product made in one part of the country to another part of the country. Another result is that since state enterprises can sell on the market, there are now two prices. Uh, there is your state-mandated price for a state-produced pair of shoes, but there's also um, the price that people might wish to pay on the free market for the same pair of shoes. As a result of these uh, independent fiefdoms and roadblocks and checkpoints, in effect, the same pair of shoes can command not just two prices, but a whole variety of prices depending on where you are. So one result of this transformation and this, uh, this, this, if you wish, uh, this, this scramble for raw resources is inflation. And this is how it works. Um, local state enterprises want to secure more raw resources then they borrow more money, and by borrowing more money, they create inflation. By the summer of 1988, inflation stands at 48%, which is an enormous amount of money in a country where prices uh, have been fixed, mandated by the state for decades. I mean, we have to, to, to cope with about 9-10% of inflation in Europe, United States, elsewhere. Can you imagine 48%? It's a huge amount.
But there's another issue. Since 1984, Zhao Young has allowed local banks to make loans. Before that, only state central central banks in Beijing were allowed to make loans. Now that local banks can make loans, you have party secretaries who initiate a spree for money. They knock on the local bank. They demand a loan. They use the money to set up new offices, to import color TVs, to buy themselves a car, to build a brand new restaurant. In other words, consumption. The result of this is that by 1988, the Bank of Agriculture, which is responsible for the contracts issued in the countryside, the Bank of Agriculture is bankrupt and can no longer pay the villagers for the contractual deliveries of grain and cotton and timber and everything else. So the, the, the Bank of Agriculture starts giving villagers IOUs, promissory notes, bits of paper, scraps of paper. So that is the situation by 1988. And people in the countryside up in arms because they're being given not money, but IOUs. And people in the cities pretty much upset at huge rates of inflation. And of course, whether it is in the countryside or in the cities, what upsets ordinary people most of all is that party members are the one who profit most from these reforms. They are the ones who can approach a bank and get a loan. They are the ones who can actually uh, buy. They are the ones who profit from this entire system. So 1988 really is a sort of key turning point leading up uh, to, no doubt, your next question, 1989. Yeah, no, absolutely. (laughs) You're setting me up to hit a home run at the moment. Um, But it's really interesting that you're talking about the inflation and when we're about to talk about Tiananmen Square. Um, In your book, it's very clear that you know, this is not an isolated incident. The like Tiananmen Square has been the scene of many protests um, for a very, for a really long period of time. Would you say that the inflation from these reforms, from this opening up, from this competition for commodities and raw materials and different fiefdoms competing, do you think that the economics situation? played a larger role in the civil unrest as opposed to the desire for the fifth modernization democracy? Well, well, very much. The events on Tiananmen Square 1989 have been portrayed, not wrongly, as a student demonstration supported by a number of scholars, intellectuals like Liu Xiaobuo, Liu Xiaobuo, who later on will be given the Nobel Prize, in, in favor of democracy. And that is not wrong. Of course, students have demonstrated 
uh, on Tiananmen Square or elsewhere before. They did so in 87, they did so in 85, they did so in 83, pretty much every second year there is a demonstration. This all starts very much, of course, with the democracy wall in 1978, uh, as ordinary people put up all sorts of posters, including demands for democracy, uh, just before the third plenum is had in December 1978 that mythical moment when Deng Xiaoping is supposed to have started four decades of reform and opening up. That moment is also marked for, for very loud demands on the part of people in Beijing for democracy. So the protests are not unique, but what makes 1989 so very different is that by now you have people in the countryside who are up in arms at the fact that they are being given IOUs, promissory notes. And in the cities, you have workers who are sick and tired of inflation. In other words, what people protest against across the social spectrum uh, is something quite specific. What they oppose is a system in which power can be exchanged for money. That's, that is what they oppose. That is how they describe the system uh, under which they have to live, a system which grants political power to party members, and these party members can use their political power in order to obtain money goods. That is the system they oppose. They, they feel that corruption is extraordinarily widespread. The only beneficiaries of these economic reforms are party members. They, whether they are workers in the cities or students, or whether they are villages in the countryside, feel left behind. In other words, this is a country pretty much on the edge of civil war by mm. the time that you reach April, May, June 19, <clears throat> 1989. Sorry. <clears throat> no, that's okay. Um so we've got all this context of you've said it quite poetically that you know we're on the brink of civil war that like that is the reality um so you've got um students in the square again hunger strikes ambulances going back and forth um they were going to use uh sorry the party was going to use the square to receive the new soviet leader um and then they weren't able to do that so all the and the civil war and this is all boiling together is it just a combination of all this pressure that the response for this particular incident was so brutal um or is it some other factor is it just like you know there's no grand plan it's just the party members with everything that was going on from their own human experience was we're on the brink of another cultural revolution. Um, our heads are going to be on the chopping block. We need to come down hard on this situation right now. Well, that, that's pretty much it. And what you have to realise, again, uh, this is something you can see very clearly from, from documents in the archives. For instance, a document written by the head of Gansu province, uh, very much a poor, impoverished place, uh, far away from Beijing and the hinterland. Once you read it, a de deputy boss of that province, when you, you read it, um, you realise that these demonstrations are not taking place 
in Beijing and Shanghai only. Uh, in Gansu province, a quarter of a million people demonstrate, not just in the provincial capital, Lanzhou, but a dozen other cities. And it, it very much includes people from all walks of life. Not only that, but the demonstrators have been able to, to paralyze the center of Lanzhou by occupying People's Square. So what you are seeing really is not just a handful of students in major cities like Shanghai and Beijing, but something which is far more widespread. And this is very much what the party fears most. It is not students demonstrating. They've had that before. It's not just the number of intellectuals protesting. It is the alliance between students, workers, and potentially people in the countryside. That is what they fear most. Because, of course, it, it has the making of a revolution, a revolution against them. So they do try. I don't think it would be fair to say that they haven't tried for, for weeks on end to somehow dissolve the, the, the issue and try to somehow to, to, to wait it out. But there's a point where the party uh, has to make a decision, either give in to the demands of these protesters or crack down. And that's exactly what happens. Um, leading into our last question for the interview, I just want you to give a, a general evaluation of the impact of this choice that the Communist Party makes to crack down hard, to send in the tanks, to... Um, continue to purge the entire area um, in front of the world with all the international reporters that were there on that day, knowing, well, I, I'm not sure if I can assume, but perhaps knowing that they were going to be put into a, a, a like a diplomatic deep freeze, as you might say, was this a choice that they had to make for the survival of the party, like Lenin, uh, Lenin instituting the NEP, for example, is this simply something that the party had to do? Did was it something that at the end of the day um, really not slowed them down too much? Um, yeah, what's your evaluation of the event of their choices? Well, I, I think that um, the very brutal suppression uh, of people in Beijing uh, sends a, a very strong message that pulsates to this very day. It's, it's a show of, of resolve and iron determination. And the message that is being sent uh, to this very day is quite clear do not query the monopoly over power of the Communist Party. It, it really is as simple as that. And of course, after 1989, again, there will be students demonstrating. Again, there will be lawyers, intellectuals. Liu Xiaobo, who in 2008 gathers signatures for a petition, a charter, 2008, a charter demanding human rights and the separation of powers. And he too is sent back to jail again, this time to die behind bars. So 
if you wish, from 1989 all the way till now, there is a continuity. There, there are those brave but rare individuals who demand separation of powers. And then there is a party pretty much determined uh, to maintain its iron grip on power and willing to do what it takes to stay there. I think that pretty much is the aftermath of 1989. Radio. Thank you so much, Frank. I don't really want to hold up too much more of your time. I'm sure you've got lots of things to be able to do. Um, Ken, before we wrap up, you just give a little bit of a plug as to where people can follow your work, um, projects, information about your books, anything that you would like the chance to share with our audience. Well, I, I, um, I would say just read the book <laughs> on <Yeah>. Amazon.com. <laughs> Um, I, I'm not one to really maintain a blog or, 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 or use Twitter. I do have, have a Facebook page, but there's hardly anything on it at all. I do have a web page. Um, I believe it's Frank Decotta, www.frankdecotta.com or something like that. Um, it, it has, I think, reasonably good summaries of some of the books, uh, but not much new. I, I'm afraid... The moment I'm done with one book, I just disappear back into the libraries and the archives for a couple of years, and you won't hear from me again for a while till the next book in three years' time. Are you have you do you see any opportunities on the horizon? Are there any now that the door for China is closing, are you looking to pivot to somewhere else that you might be able to give us a sneak peek? Well, of course, as I always say, you have to be an opportunist. You see an opportunity, you seize it. So now we're going back to the 1990s, really, when when the archives were closed, and you had to make do with um, different topics and different types of material. So what I'm doing right now is uh, writing a prequel. In other words, 12 Chaps in a Room, 1921, Foundation of the Chinese Communist Party, 1949, red flag goes up over the Forbidden City in Beijing. How do you get from the one to the other? In other words, um, you know, the, the the history of the Communist Party up till 1949. Absolutely fascinating. Lots of documents you can find, um, certainly in Hong Kong, also elsewhere. M- many of them uh, printed and, and reasonably easy to find. Righto. Well, I'm looking forward to reading that one when it's done. Thank you again, Frank, and thank you listeners for tuning in today. We'll see you next time on the Modern History HSC podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Modern History HSC podcast. Make sure to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Modern History HSC podcast. And if you have the time, leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. This allows us to attract more high-profile guests into the future. And finally, remember that truth are not merely facts, because facts alone can be manipulated either intentionally or unintentionally. Truth will only reveal itself when an individual undertakes an honest, thorough, and courageous investigation. We must restrain our intent to prove contemporary points and concerns and instead accept that we could be the exact people that we are studying and critiquing, This is true empathy and it is uncomfortable, but is necessary in the pursuit of truth. Thank you and we'll see you next time.